1: Welcome to this episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast, Harvard, Princeton, Penn, MIT, once pillars of academia are now being looked at with a little bit of question in people's minds because of the agendas in the administration, in the corporate boards that run them. So what do we think people are being taught in the classes at these institutions? And when it comes down to history, It's hard to believe that history could be manipulated and shaped to be taught in a way that, I don't know, makes you hate your own country. But it seems that that is what's been going on here in America over several decades, probably longer. Jack Henneman is our guest coming up. He is a former attorney and healthcare executive turned historian. He's also on the board of directors of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, an organization we promote proudly here on this podcast. He has found a way to teach history in a podcast that is so accessible, so listenable, so interesting, so well-researched, and I dare say unbiased. This guy This guy needs to be heard. And so I highly recommend you listen to him. Now, we're going to start off with an excerpt of one of his podcasts where he quotes from a JFK speech from 1946, just to give you a little flavor of what he delivers. And then we'll get in deep with Jack Hanneman about history, about today, and how we're talking about American history, and how the future might look back on all of this. It's going to be, I can already tell you, it is fascinating. Stay tuned.
0: Welcome To the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Conceived in Grecian thought, strengthened by Christian morality, and stamped indelibly into American political philosophy, the right of the individual against the state is the keystone of our Constitution. Each man is free. He is free in thought, he is free in expression, he is free in worship.
1: Well, that is from one of your episodes uh, surrounding a speech by JFK. Uh, Welcome, Jack. I'm so glad to have you here. And it's been really interesting to dip into your podcast and listen. But it makes me think of a lot of questions that uh, a guy like you, very accomplished, very sought after, obviously on the board of directors of FIRE, which we're a big fan of, Um. What made you want to do this it's almost as though you're you're teaching a history class every episode
0: well thank you first for having me on it's a it's an honor um the idea really came to me as a pandemic project um, <laughs> i uh, sort of work part time doing consulting and such my wife was very busy she's a psychotherapist and by the time September rolled around, I wanted to visit my mother in Charlottesville, Virginia. I live in Austin, Texas. So I swabbed up and <laughs> drove to Charlottesville and visited my mom. And then uh, I went on a three-week pandemic drive about September 2020 in October, listened to podcasts that have reported this to my Facebook friends and a law school roommate turned me on to David Crowther's History of England podcast, which is very detailed and uh, is now 12 years along. And I listened to 30 or 40 episodes and wondered if anyone had done a similar thing uh, for the Americans and really no one had. Um, There's obviously a lot of history podcasts, but they bounce around. They don't sort of, do this sort of granular, granular progression that I'm doing. Um, and uh, I really did it as something to do. Um, taught myself everything. It's still completely, I do it all myself. I don't have a helpful producer. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it sort of took off. And then uh, I've, I, I I've gotten a lot of sort of positive feedback and, uh, now, uh, it's the funnest thing I do. And <laughs> I, you know, love the new community that I've sort of built up around it.
1: I would imagine one of the most fun parts would be the research, the studying for every episode, because it, that to me sounds like an exploratory journey where you're learning something new all the time. How far back did you start? In other words, e- it's called The History of the Americans. At, one po- at what point do you think the history of the Americans begins?
0: Well, that that's obviously a, a subject one can argue about. And in fact, uh, when I got back and started October 2020, sort of conceptualizing the whole thing, I started by reading two or three books on Jamestown and two or three books on Plymouth. And then I realized I was doing it wrong. That There was this whole phase of exploration by the Spanish Mm -hmm. that included um, the Narvaez expedition, uh, Soto, Coronado, and so forth in the 1500s. And they covered a huge part of the country. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, there were, people here first. And that sounds silly. um, But I had to sort of break out of my own assumptions. Like most of us, we were shaped by our schooling. Uh, And so I uh, opened it up with two episodes on the indigenous peoples before Columbus. And then I, uh, from there, uh, did, uh, I think, four or five episodes on Columbus. Because if you don't talk about him, it's very hard to understand everything that comes after it. Uh so even though the only place in the US he touched was Puerto Rico, um the uh you still have to really engage with it.
1: That part of it is fascinating because Columbus has been made to be such a villain in America. Uh, Columbus Day has all but been canceled. Um, do you think we have that right or wrong these days? One of the things you say is presenting history without present presentism. <clears throat> In other words, you know, the, the lens of everything we know now, you're trying to just present it as it, as it happened. So what do we have right? And what do we have wrong about Columbus? Do you think?
0: Well, uh, it depends who we is. I think, look, okay, Columbus, Columbus, uh, um, was a remarkable and deeply flawed person. He had, uh, um, uh, an innovative idea. It was essentially a high risk venture that he pitched much as a, uh, tech startup would, you know, seek funding today. He really had a pitch deck and he shopped it around the monarchs of, of Europe and, uh, Really, at the last minute, Isabella took it up on a on the theory that it was a uh, he, Columbus was probably wrong, but it was a worthwhile speculation. He was a natural seaman. He had capabilities at sea, uh, not just sailing to the west, but coming back in a very arduous uh, journey. And remember, if he didn't get back. He, st- he he wouldn't have discovered anything because he would right. have perished. Right. Uh, and he was a terrible colonial administrator uh, and um, was personally insecure, and uh, he was hard to like. Um, and he initiated slavery in Hispaniola to mine gold. Um, And so there is an awful lot one can criticize about Columbus um, on the one hand. On the other hand, as an act of inspiration, courage uh, and vision, uh, it was quite something. And, uh, you know, my view of history uh, and the importance of history is that it teaches uh, what Greg Lukianoff, who you had on recently, would call epistemic humility. Uh, It it teaches us how much we don't know. If the great people in history uh, have huge strengths and huge weaknesses, Uh, so do we all. And I think that uh, just as people who idolize Columbus or anyone else are are sort of too certain of their views. I also think in many cases, today's critics are also too certain of their views. They tend to seize upon, uh, you know, one trade or one thing they did and conclude that that condemns them. Well, we're all likely to be equally guilty
1: of something horrible if judged from the distance of a couple of centuries. <laughs> which is which is what I love about your view of all of this. And I think it gets so lost in today's discussions about history that people can do great things and still have flaws, but they still did great things. Uh, and we, we could pick them out today if we wanted to. I'm sure we could find great flaws and and people have found them in Steve Jobs and, you know, whomever you want to find them in, it doesn't deny an accomplishment. So is that kind of what you mean by eliminating presentism?
0: Well, it's, it's, that is a um, aspect of, of that. Um, Presentism uh, really means uh, sort of what it sounds like the application of, today's morality or philosophical thinking or point of view, uh, to moments, events, people, decisions in the past.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, uh, you know, the, the, there's a, there's a lot that could be argued about that you can't eliminate it entirely. We are ourselves trapped by how we're raised and what we've learned. Uh, so I've, I've now sometimes say there's no intentional presentism, uh, you do, we all do our best. Um, but I think that the, the famous historian's expression, and I don't know who said it first, the past is another country, uh, and it is as perhaps, um, um, uh, unwise to try to judge the past any more than you would judge some completely different country and one of the things that i find strange today is in, you know a lot of our schools we will denounce figures from our past but we would never denounce some current leader from i don't know nigeria or colombia or iran uh, in in the same terms, and yet, our own past is just as alien, if not more so, as you know other countries
1: of the world that we'd be much more reticent about criticizing. How do you think? So you know, Columbus. We can move ahead to the the founding of the United States, etc. These figures were painted and drawn. And quoted on paper and in print, and now we have all of the technology, and we have for some time to have recordings, to have video, to have all of these things, and and some way terrifying uh, deepfakes. But if we just were to rely on the accuracy of today's technology, I think it it's so easy for people today to envision a George Washington. Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and almost a an animated cartoon drawing in their high school history books sort of way. And to to take them less seriously as real humans because they don't necessarily have, you know, photograph proving this person or I don't know if I'm making this clear, but it but today you can look back now and you can see video. Of John yep. F. Kennedy and you can hear his voice and all of those things. How much of a difference do you think? This is a little kind of I'm asking for your judgment here, but how much different do you think that that gives the perspective of those those differing generations? Well, that's
0: a very interesting topic. Um I think that video conveys a lot of information that we don't video and recordings convey a lot of information that it's very hard to extract from documents um that's got to be the case um there's probably something deceptive about that too it's easy for us to think we know somebody better than uh, we would have um without that stuff um you know you know, do we know uh, just to be bipartisan about it? Do we know uh, really very much about Barack Obama or Donald Trump? We think we do. Um, but do we? I don't know. I think I'm I, I, I'm extremely uh, humble in my own ability to make these assessments. So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see as the as, you know, the era in which we have sound and video for our national leaders, national heroes, especially in large quantity, is that lengthens. Um, you know, I think understanding how that influences our perceptions of them will be a very interesting project.
1: Yeah. I, I think so as well. I, I just, you know, I find it, it, it seems very easy for people to tear down statues of people that they don't really um, see as human. And, you know, they see them almost as a caricature. Uh, and they, again, judge them for the flaws. They apply presentism, etc. And I think that's just been a, a really tragic, um, development in this country, but that's the, go ahead. Uh, you want well, to say something?
0: I, if I may opine, I think, yes. um, I think, um, <laughs> You know, the are, statues are statutes are um, a complicated topic. Um, I would say in many cases, uh, my objection to taking them down is less political mm-hmm. than it is that I think it's a lost opportunity. I think that um, in many cases, uh, the statue creates a, an opportunity to shape a new narrative and to have that conversation. Around it, and that when you take the statue down, the 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 focal point for the conversation goes away, and people are less likely to learn. Um, On the other hand, a lot of these statues were put up for presentist reasons, if you will. So, for example, a lot of the statues that celebrate heroes of the Confederacy didn't go up. In the decades after the Civil War, they went up two generations later. Uh, really is an attempt to reframe our national perception of that war. So they were put up for a political reason. And now they're coming down for a political reason. And I struggle with that. I'm, I'm not big on tearing them down, but I have a hard time criticizing them. Uh, there's this whole effort is, of course, moved to places which I think are extremely troubling for our national memory. Removing Thomas Jefferson is really different than removing, in my opinion, Jefferson Davis. I mean, the, the, it's a, it's a, in my mind, you know, there's a big difference between those two. And I think in in our uh, in today's world, it's hard to uh, have a discussion about you know, where that line ought to be and the nuances that ought to be taken into account.
1: I, that's an extremely good point. Um, I, I, I'm having you on to opine, so I, I appreciate it when you do. Um, one of the things that came to mind when I knew I was going to be talking with you and discussing American history is this, uh, in the last several years, the 1619 Project comes on, with the New York Times pro, uh, platforming this, as a way to reframe the founding of this country uh, it, to a time when the first slaves were brought here. Uh, the woman who authored it is not willing to debate. It seems that many people have tried and offered to say, let's, let's discuss this. Let's debate it. And debate, as we've seen, is, is, um, is hardly happening anywhere in a real sense anymore, which is, equally as tragic as just pulling statues down or, or just deciding that one person is evil and that they can't have any good about them or vice versa. Um, what did you make of that, of the New York times platforming that idea and of the fact that she, she doesn't want to discuss it with anyone. She doesn't want to put, put her thoughts or ideas, her beliefs to the test.
0: Well, um, the New York Times, uh, New York Times will be the New York Times. It it um, the 1619 Project. Um, I think um, has a whole bunch of different elements to it, as I understand it. And I'm not a student of it. I've read a bunch of the critiques. I've not read the big thick book of all the essays. I want to be very clear about that. Sure. Um, I think it is one thing. Uh, And a good thing to elevate uh, a lot of the scholarship that's been done in the last 50 years to understand the history of enslaved peoples in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really been going on a long time in academic circles, and a lot of it's really good. There is, for example, been a huge project, and I'm going to not quite remember the exact name of it. So apologies to the scholars involved, but uh, to pour through. 17th, 18th, and 19th century shipping records, and build a massive database of where enslaved peoples were captured, how they were transported on what ships to what places, and where they went. And this has been a um, massive effort that's told us a tremendous amount about the history of slavery in the Western Hemisphere, not just Mm -hmm. in in the United States. I think that's awesome. I think that a lot of the work that's been done to understand this is great, and I think the New York Times, in elevating a bunch of that so it's more uh, uh, it's it's more widely understood at a popular level is fine. They then did something else which i don't agree with, obviously uh which is they uh, wanted to, in the elevation of all of this excellent information, excellent scholarship, um, use it to entirely reframe how Americans look at their country. And it wasn't just in the stuff they wrote in the New York Times for their readership, but they, they built a whole elementary school curriculum around it uh, and took it upon themselves to weaponize this scholarship for a particular political objective mm-hmm. and again i think that that is very destructive of the point of history i think as i said a great value of history is that it teaches epistemic humility well the problem is politics is about precisely the opposite it's about epistemic confidence or even arrogance you know people in politics and partisans online and all the rest are just so darn certain of their (laughs) point of view. Okay. That Uh. they will assert it even in the face of evidence. And my guess is, is that, um, Hannah Nicole Jones is one such person and the people who want to debate her in many cases are also that way. I think therefore that the, value in these kinds of debates uh, are often, uh, it's often suspect. I think we really have to recover our old habits of talking to each other. Um, I don't want to lump you in with me, but I think people roughly our age have a shot at doing that. Uh, but we have to break ourselves, again, an opinion, of, of this uh, modern idea that what we want to do is own the other guys much rather yeah. have a conversation with them and figure out what we can agree on.
1: It's so interesting that you use that term own. Uh, you know, I want to own you. I, you know, I was uh, ambushed on a particular podcast. And, and when they put out the social media clips, you know, so-and-so torches, so-and-so schools, so-and-so blasts, so-and-so, you know, just so in other words, it's one side versus the other. And the there's no there wasn't a conversation. It was someone just sledgehammering the other person it, to to make their own points, and there can be no there can only be one winner. There cannot be conversation and debate. There has to be a winner and a and not just a loser. But a demolished, imploded mind, you know, this person's opinion is just absolutely flattened. And that kind of rhetoric has just been soaring in the press. And and of course, social media has exacerbated that. But it's it's I've noticed that so much lately that, you know, um, all of those those verbs torched, you know, schooled, just you know, all of it, you, you know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm yes. losing track of the words, but um, it, it is really interesting. And I think you raise a beautiful point. And that is that as certain as, as Nicole Hannah-Jones is the, the opposite person would be, I, I, you're right. How do we, do you think, because you seem to have some confidence that we can learn or adjust and get back to talking to each other? What's the first step?
0: Well, I think, I think that serious people, who want to actually have an exchange of views rather than score an immediate political point or social media moment you know there's things we could do i think um to make that better so for example um if two people on the opposite sides of the 1619 project uh wanted to have a debate maybe a way to do it would be to have it in private as a conversation and have a transcript Mm -hmm. and uh, release the transcript a month later uh, uh, and have people digest that, you know, um, and, and potentially learn from it. Um, Each in that context, one-on-one. I mean, I have, I have friends who are my age from college who, are jerks and an exchange on Facebook, but, you know, you're sitting around with them having a beer and you have a complete, you know, turns out you've got about 40% common ground on the Absolutely. issue. And,
1: Absolutely. And, it's, and,
0: and it's, a, and, and it's a completely different thing. So I, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of fretting about quote our democracy. And I think that the most important thing uh, we can do to protect our democracy is actually figure out how to have open-minded conversations with each other again. And that may require rebuilding a little bit uh, using new mechanisms because we don't trust each other in an age of social media and video. So we need to yeah. rebuild trust. And there's ways to do that, I think.
1: that That's, you know, when you were talking about, I, I hate to bounce around here, but when you were talking about Christopher Columbus and how visionary and brave and, you know, the risk taking that he that he undertook to, uh, to 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 do what he did. And yet he was flawed. I, I wonder how history will look back on someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who was a visionary, who came up with this amazing Facebook meta, all these. But there were there's been damage done by social media. We haven't even begun to see the damage done. By social media. I wonder if decades, generations from now, Mark Zuckerberg will be held in some kind of presentism of the future where they say, how could he not have seen um, how damaging social media might be? Now, I'm not saying he's responsible for all of it, but he built the platforms. He built the original uh, town square where people could just throw stones.
0: Well, you you see this you see this uh happening with industrial entrepreneurs of 100 years ago right i mean uh henry ford is an example okay and henry ford uh, was an awful anti-semite we know that now um probably knew it then if we were paying super close attention um and he uh unleashed uh, he he basically made the automobile possible for ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And that has been extraordinary. Now, uh, you know, um, at least in some circles, uh, the view is, well, maybe the automobile, uh, the mass use of automobiles has been really destructive in ways that put us at risk. Not my point of view. I'm just saying sure. that it's uh, uh, a perception that's taken hold. So, Leaving aside Ford's personal defects that uh, made him somebody you wouldn't necessarily want as a role model in, in some ways, um, his legacy in business uh, may be looked upon very differently uh, uh, even in 30 years than, uh, from now than it, than, it, than it was 30 years ago.
1: It's, uh, it's interesting. I think there, there are a number of industries we could look to and, and, and say that, and certainly a number of leaders we could look at. And, and we'll dissect opinion after opinion and decision after decision uh, as the years go by and decide we feel differently about it 25 years from now than we did at the time that it happened. This is the issue. The other question I have for you regarding history, because I think it's so difficult now for people to trust academia, as we've seen recently to trust that they're actually teaching history as it happened, rather than teaching history the way that they want you to learn it. And that's why I find your podcast really, really engaging and interesting and something I can sink my teeth into, because it doesn't seem to me, you come to it with an agenda except to expose it and to, to give it a place um, and to allow people to listen. So, I, it this is really an interesting I, I wonder if it's the wave that we don't we don't we can't trust academia to really educate people i think in the ways that are that teach them to how to think they teach them what to think um what do you think <laughs> well
0: i i should say um uh i'm a long way from being a university student <laughs> yeah, uh, and i both. think i think it's uh easy to you know um and i find myself doing it like yakking with my wife I'll make some comment about academia you know uh but it's really a, a lot more complicated than that including among historians um and and, and you you see this with real age differentials historians my age and older are tend to be much more uh old school in their approach and uh as is the case sort of across various fields the the younger uh, uh professionals tend to be more politicized and uh you know maybe there's a reaction to that coming in the next generation that's rising up i i have some feeling that that may be the case. I, what I do think is happening. And I sort of a couple episodes back, I I have a editorial sidebar that tackles this point is that um, historians who, 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 who tie their scholarship to a political objective today Mm -hmm. are, um, um, doing exactly that they are spending the coin of institutional credibility. that was built up over a long time by, by academics who uh, probably did bring political views to class, but tried not to make that the purpose of what they were doing. Um, you know, nobody is entirely free from that. Um, but, um, academics today who say listen to me I'm a professional in the field I'm an academic and this is how this re- you know this thing in the past relates to politics today mm-hmm. are um, um, I think damaging uh, their own institutions credibility in ways that you know we've seen across other institutions uh, in recent times. Um, um, I'd probably give away some of my uh, point of view on the topic by suggesting that the public health people during yeah. the pandemic just passed, uh, to some degree, uh, spent the coin of objectivity or, or, or public confidence that had been built up over generations by becoming too partisan and too specifically political in their policy responses, recommendations.
1: Right. Uh, it's it's a great point. Um, I have a I I have a final notion to discuss with you. I have a friend who in her email signature uh, quotes Jablonski by saying data don't lie. Um, I can take raw data and say, yes, two plus two equals four. That does. That's no lie. But data can be manipulated to form a particular narrative, would you agree with that? Well,
0: I mean, in all kinds of situations, you know, um, financial information in the hands of a of a good financial analyst can be characterized to show a company is doing well or less well. Um, so um, uh, that's the case with history. Um, you know, part of the practice of history is arguing about the importance or relevance or weight that should be put on a given piece of evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, this is a huge part of what I would call the more sophisticated argument over the 1619 project. Okay. Um, There are um, pieces of evidence, and it's not I'm not going to sort of explore it in detail, partly because I don't know it well enough to, to, to sound really competent on the point. But I do know that, that you know, the 1619 Project and the scholars who back it um, put a lot more weight on certain, I'll say, moments of evidence, documents, bits of evidence than the scholars who say, no, look, there's always an example Uh, You know, um, you know, yes, there were people who had the thought that, you know, it would be easier to preserve the institution of slavery, you know, if the United States were independent from Great Britain. Um, Sure. Okay. The question is, does one guy offering that in a diary entry mean that it was truly a reason? Right. Um, And, and you know, there were more pieces of evidence than that kind of thing. I don't mean to suggest, uh, I'm not trying to disparage either side. I'm just saying the weight one puts on that sort of thing is really important. And today there's going to be a huge amount of it. You know, um, um, how many emails are sent by a White House? Well, future (laughs) historians will be arguing over, you know, which ones were super decisive Uh, And I hope they do it uh, without having a political axe to grind. It's said that it takes 50 years to write a good history of a presidency because they can't be written by people who were taken up by the political passions of the moment. So maybe the best history of the Trump presidency is going to be written by somebody who's 10 years old right now you know um and that's part of the reason you need somebody with distance to put some weight on the different elements
1: this is so fascinating i could talk to you for hours um and but the the beauty is that people can listen to you for hours the podcast is the history of the americans and you can find it everywhere uh and you can follow him on x formerly twitter and many places. Jack Hanneman, it's, it's been a real treat. I Like I said, I, I'd love to have you back because so many of your episodes, there was an episode on Thanksgiving I was listening to that raised so many questions and queries in my mind. And uh, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful listen. And I hope people will go find it. The History of the Americans podcast. He is Jack Hanneman. Thank you, Hanneman. Thank you. I have a good friend named Hanneman. Thank you for uh, taking the time. I I genuinely appreciate it. Th-
0: thank you for having me, and thank you for your kind words. Oh, very you're, much you're appreciate it's a welcome. labor of
1: love. Uh, it, you're very fortunate to be able to do that. It's 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 a beautiful thing. People go check it out. This one's worth. They're, they're, my son said to me last night, Mom, there are so many podcasts, and I said, Yeah, I know that son. I'm <laughs> I've got one, and he said, But they're just everyone's got a but fortunately now and then we roll upon one that we find that is useful that is listenable and that is worth your time and this is one of them so Jack thanks for joining us everyone don't as I always say at the end of every podcast be brave do good go out there in the world today and do something that takes a little courage and something that maybe uh, makes a stranger smile and we will see you next time